This is The Yay, I'm Reg Clay. And Norman G. This is The Yay, where we talk about life in the theater and the theater of life. Yay! Yay! We want to uh, thank uh, Central Works for sponsoring The Yay. Uh, Central Works, the new play theater. They are reinventing theater one play at a time. And we really yay and yay. Absolutely, yeah. We're, and we want to have uh, Jan Zweifler on. We've already had... Um, Hopefully soon. Yeah, hope, hopefully very, very soon. We want to thank uh, Central Works for sponsoring us. And we have a fantastic guest, Jim Forniatis, uh, the owner, well, the former owner of the Darkroom Theater. Uh, you are a singer, actor, uh, all sort of, uh, you know, a creative. All around wise guy. That's exactly right. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, you also have a podcast too, right? Don't you? Uh, I'm on, actually, I'm a DJ on uh, River Gibbs FM. Uh, it's part of a Sunday show called The Overflow Sunday Service, and I'm on at um, 10 a.m. Uh, Pacific time, which is oh. 6 p.m. over in Britain. So I'm like the evening show over there. <laughs> where and where is this? Where are you broadcasting from? Well, well I'm I I, I uh, the show originates from my studio, my home studio, uh-huh. but it but then it goes on the server and goes out over England and then gets rebroadcast in Amsterdam over Europe. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking just off mic before I hit record that uh, for those who don't know, for those who are millennials or new to the Bay Area, the darkroom theater, I mean, just the experience of the darkroom theater, it was really like Second City TV or it was like Saturday Night Live or the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's sort of like grunge, almost a, a punkish atmosphere in the Bay Area doing theater. And it was a wonderful experience. And unfortunately, the, the, I think your doors closed, was it 2017, 2016, Jim? Actually, it was earlier than that. It was 2015. But we ended up stay, staying at the space for a while, but we were impelled to not do shows. And where was the space? This was on Mission Street and uh, uh, 19th. Um, okay. It was right. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, right in the heart of the mission, you know, right between a pawn shop and a laundromat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Uh, it looks like it was a converted movie theater. It was a movie theater that you guys converted, at least from the decal. Actually, the, actually it was a, a punk rock record store called Mission Records before nice. we got there uh-huh. but i think originally it was a hotel uh and like the upper balcony was like part of like the area where they had you know like received people and stuff and then the upstairs apartments used to be rooms so there was like this huge area when you came in so it was it was kind of interesting space it, it made it uh, easy to convert into a theater which yeah. i did with my own hands oh wow <laughs> self-made man all right yeah. well as I, as I begin uh, all of our podcasts, uh, Norman, how are you doing? Uh, it's been an interesting week. Uh, oh, so, you know, it is my birthday season. So I, I always have to start birthday with Birthday to you. Well, you still got, you got a long time before we get there. But I created the birthday season. I have decided that the birthday season is whatever number you're turning this year. It's that many days before you begin, you prepare to celebrate. Oh, great. So the older you get, the more birthday season you get. Exactly. And, uh, you know, one friend always says, Richard Talaveras is like, what? So what's going to happen when you turn, what? You're going to, when you turn 300, you're going to do the whole year. And I'm like, I look forward to that, honestly. (laughs) I think if I get to be 300, I do get to celebrate the whole year. Hey, that'll be a year long thing. But if um, I get to be 300, I'll celebrate, you know, being able to go to the bathroom. Probably. (laughs) That, you know, everybody can cheer. That'll be great. But uh, no, so this week was, um, I did a, a shots performance. <clears throat> uh, they called it the Boredom Games. Uh, it's still available on YouTube, free, uh, but donations always welcome. And I actually ended up doing a, um, 
it's funny. It's always hard to describe shots because if you say sketch comedy, that's not quite it. We ended up having two kind of serious pieces, and, and I was in one that was very serious. And um, it's always exciting to just sort of see what we can pull together. Uh, and then people in the final piece, uh, they were playing with these filters that gave people this very uh, bug eye quality, which was oh, fun. Yeah, the millennials do that all the time. They do these pictures, but, you know, they have like, I don't know, um, tails, right. whatever, and you can yeah. vision. Yeah. Well, this one, it, this one reshapes your face so your eyes are suddenly huge. And it was fun to see them as they, um, it was uh, two bugs going on a, you know, a match.com kind of date thing. Um, you sure they didn't slip some acid into your drink? It felt like it. It so did. <laughs> um, and no, it was a lot of fun. So that was it. And then the big one, you know, part of the birthday season for me is always just checking in with the doc. So I, um, I had a physical therapy appointment, but I always make it more of a medical visit than anything. And I'm thrilled to hear that the exercises I've been doing are I'm right on point and I just can keep going. And she gave me a bunch more new exercises that hurt. So I know that they're going to work. Um, and yeah, I'm just like, this is great. And I lost 10 pounds. So when I started my birthday season, I posted a picture of me in the bathroom. You know, here, here's what I got and here's what I'm working with. And hopefully by my birthday, I can do a Wait, wait a minute, what kind of show is after this? After photo. Hmm? <laughs> I said, what kind of show is this? Here's what I got, here's what I'm working with. <laughs> I, you know, I think a lot of us look down and see that belly and are just like, uh. Yeah, so that, you know what? I'm going to show the world and then, um, and then hopefully I can show the world. So the exercise that she gave me yesterday, I think my belly is going to look very nice by October. I'm looking forward to it. Nice work, think, dude. Yeah, I think all of us are battling the same thing. Now, Jim, I'm not going to ask how old you are, but do you feel, because I, I still 50, feel... 58 years old. Right on. <laughs> do you still feel 30 or whatever? I mean, you know, I know for myself, I feel, I mean, I've, all of us, all three of us have crossed the 50 threshold, and Norman, you're, I think, 62, right? No, 61. 60. I'll be 61 in October. Okay, yeah. Trying to kill him, man. He's only 61. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, here's how I feel about it. It depends on what you're talking about. Uh, if you're talking about like, do I feel old and creaky? I feel older than 58 sometimes. Yeah. But if you're talking about, you know, can I still like strap on a guitar and scream punk rock? Then I'm 20, right? Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, I can still nail that shit, you know. So. Right on. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the cool thing about art. Art sort of makes you feel young. I mean, I think I'll feel much much older if all I did was just go to work and just come home and just you know chill out. But, you know, doing the art and, you know, doing the auditions, like I, one of the things that I did, I did the, um, the TVA Generals, and of course, all of it's digital. And uh, just getting up and, you know, doing these monologues, it's like, okay, the, the brain is refreshed and I've got to, you know, I'm, I'm active. It's not like being on stage, but, you know, it's still something. It's always, good to, it's always good to stay engaged, but don't, it's, it's not just that, because I know a lot of people who are busy are just fucking miserable. Uh, it, it's also, you, you have to, yeah, it has to bring you joy. Your art has to bring you joy. And the, the, I feel like the uh, amount of joy that you have in your art is commensurate with how young you feel while you're doing it. Yep, to I totally, totally agree. And, you know, everyone should, uh, you know, get, get involved in your thing. You, you, I think everyone's side gig has become far more important now, especially, I mean, there've been a lot of, there've been a couple of suicides and, and breakups. I'm wondering how COVID-19 is affecting us mentally, uh, spiritually. Uh, I think for us artists, you know, we just say, okay, so how do we deal with these constraints and, and focus our art 
you know, through Zoom and whatever. But I do want to tell you, I'm, I'm probably the wrong person to ask uh, because uh, I'm living up in uh, Sutter County right now. So I left San Francisco, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. And I'm essentially, I was essentially living in like social distancing anyway. You know, right. I was contacting everybody on social media. I was doing projects over the internet by sending like things for overdubs to friends of mine, just as, as MP3 files. So uh, when uh, it hasn't really affected me in a lot of ways other than the fact that I can't go to a restaurant or go to the movies. But other than that, I'm usually holed up, you know, in my studio or working out in the yard doing stuff anyway. So. Yeah, I hear you. Norman, do you know of any friends or whatever who are, I, I guess they're having some mental issues with the whole social distancing stuff? Uh, not overtly, but um, I do notice, for example, my mother-in-law, when I, when we go up to drop something off or, you know, have a little visit, um, I can feel the impulse to want to touch is strong in her. Um, and the happier she gets or more excited she gets in whatever we're discussing, the more I can feel that tension. And, um, and I would say at least once a visit, she ends up in tears. Um, just because it's all so weird. And I'm like, okay, yeah. this is probably happening to a lot of people who are by themselves. I, uh... I guess, you know, it's kind of funny. It's, it's kind of like a mixed blessing because, uh, I, you know, I wasn't really touchy-feely in my family. So I, I didn't have a lot of that, which is kind of sad in a way, but it also means that I'm adapting to this better now. You know, <laughs> you, you were lucky to have that in your life, but now it's starting to affect you. So you see what I mean? Right. Yeah. No, I, I think I think the mental health aspect of it can can use some more attention as we move forward. Oh, gosh, we're going to talk about current events. <laughs> what a week. Oh, we must definitely do well, especially the Postal Service. I mean, just the last thing about the social, the, you know, as, as Americans, we're spoiled. We're really spoiled. We have our toys. We always go to the movies. We go here. We go there. Right. We're sporting events. And we're, we're having our toys taken away. You, know, you can say God is doing it if you're spiritual, or you can say this is karma or whatever it is, whatever you, however you, however you rationalize what COVID-19 is. But, you know, 100 years ago, and I've talked about this before, our grandparents or whatever during World War I and II, they had to deal with rationing and, you know, curtailing a lot of the things they did, and they did it for patriotic reasons. There's no reason why we can't say, okay, this is uncomfortable. I've got to put on the mask or whatever, but I've just got to deal with it. Like for current events, so a man in Massachusetts gave shoppers a COVID hug. He was just going around giving people hugs, saying, I've got COVID, I'm going to give it to you. A man in Tennessee int intentionally coughs on employees, and in Las Vegas, a man sprays water on people, freaking them out just to get likes on YouTube. So right. these are the things that are going on. I mean, what, you have any, any um, hot, hot takes on how people are acting irrationally? Yeah, uh, people are idiots. <laughs> people right. are, are just they're just morons and you know uh, but more more specifically it's it's they they have a tendency to like you know as long as they got all their comfort zone all set up they they can kind of like exist on an even keel but the second the second something goes wrong everybody pushes the panic button i mean you remember dial back like about four or five months and everybody was like ripping the toilet paper off the shelves right people started getting nasty i mean just over toilet paper. Right. You know, I, I'm old enough to remember when there was a gas shortage back in 1976. Yeah. You take, you take a little creature comfort away, just like, you know, when we had a drought and people were complaining about the water and suddenly people get nasty. 
suddenly right. it's not about brotherhood and neighborhood and all that kind of stuff. It's about, hey, I want my thing. I want it now. Right. And I don't want any hassle, you know? Right. It's just uh, I, people don't understand that everybody's got to roll their sleeves up you know, in a situation like this. Oh, everybody's yeah. got to look out for each other. Through. Yeah. You know, like wearing a mask. I can't believe we're having this discussion because, you know, like everybody will like cover their mouth when they, ha when they sneeze. And right. they're doing it. They're not doing it because their their hand is like going to hermetically seal their face and keep them from getting sick. They're doing it so that they don't spray all over people as right. a common courtesy. And it seems like you know the 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 first little first butt rash that you get from a situation like this, and common courtesy goes out the window, and suddenly people are screaming at each other about their rights and stuff. Yeah. Speaking of which, um, you can't even. So this is even happening on Sesame Street. There's a place what? in Pennsylvania called Sesame Place, I think it's called. It's a it's an amusement park, but it's based on the theme of Sesame Street. And um, an individual, uh, basically an employee, basically told a customer who was visiting there, hey, you got to put your mask on. And the guy punched him, punched the employee in the face. I think it was like a 17, 18-year-old kid who got punched and had uh -huh. his nose broken just because he was told, please put your mask on. It's even happening on Sesame Street, so it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I know I, I had a little Sesame Street. I yeah, love you it. have to laugh to keep from crying. But on a serious note, in Florida, see, I said that you know Trump keeps on talking about open up the schools, everything's going to be cool. And I said, listen, if a child dies of COVID nineteen, it's going to hit the fan. And already two children already have died from COVID nineteen: a six year old and a nine year old in Florida. Oh, we're down to six now because there was a seven year old a week or two ago. Yeah, I got, a bigger, I got a bigger problem right now. There's like detention camps on the border with kids in them, and you know right. they're not socially distancing, right? Right. And their parents aren't there, and they're just yeah. that's just a, that's just like a petri dish. Yeah, yeah. that's to explode. Yeah. Town's policy, yeah. Yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible. <laughs> that's all we can say about it. <laughs> and also the postal wars. I mean, I you know I've never thought of that. I would think yeah, I don't think too much about the U.S. Post Office. You know, prior right. to what's going on and now. I do all the time. I I back when I was in New York City, I used to have a, a independent record label, and we lived and eat, breathe and eat at the post office. It was all about like getting money in and sending records out and boxing right. things up. But we were doing it all the time. The post office. I love listening to people complain about the post office because they either have an agenda or they don't know what they're talking about. Because the post office is incredible. It doesn't get any money from taxpayers. It gets money from stamps. <laughs> and it's cheap, and it manages to get the mail everywhere it needs to go. Right. All across the country. Even FedEx uses the fucking post office. Yes. When they, when they can't be bothered to deliver something somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, so it's The post I mean, office is awesome. Yeah. Uh, Norman, what did you think about the hearing? I mean, uh, so, I mean, amid all of the other distractions, oh. you had the postmaster general saying, oh, everything's okay and we don't right. need machines. So they've taken the machines away because the justification is, well, people don't use the mail that often, so we're justified in taking these machines away. Right. But he doesn't take into account the, you know, the, the crisis that we're having right now. And yeah. they're not taking machines away in Alaska. Yeah. But they are taking them away in New York. Yeah. Why does that surprise you? I mean, this is the guys who disbanded like the emergency management team. Yes. Because because their justification was is like, well, those guys are only important when there's an emergency. Right. <laughs> so what do we yeah. need them around all the time for? Yeah. No. Isn't isn't there a House hearing coming up? This was the Senate hearing, right? Yes. Yeah. I think. I yeah. think there's a House hearing coming up. I can't. I'm like, please. I want you to ream his ass. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, they didn't. They didn't give him enough of a hard time. No, you, they didn't. You should have heard like Mitt Romney prevaricating, going, "Well, I'm sure that you have the post office best interest in mind, but right. if you could explain to me, da 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 da." Yeah, no, it was it was it was BS. No, I'm looking forward to, the, I'm looking forward to the. We're firing you. That's what I want. <laughs> yeah, the only problem is, I mean, the Senate is so controlled by the Republicans. I don't know if anything's going to really happen. I mean, I get so disappointed when you know the House. Adam Schiff yeah. and Dow Dimmings or whatever, you know, really hit, 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 hit. And then it well, goes- the most, they can, the most they can do now is just like drag them up there and try to embarrass the, the Republicans because nothing's going to happen before the election anyway. And once the right. election happens, it's all, all bets are off. Yeah. But, but, but Mitt and Lindsey are being so nice because they have to be right now. They're up for re-election. They have to be. So we can, we'll see. We'll see what arm twisting we can do. Yeah. Hopefully. And I mean, this goes to the big question. I mean, is it going to affect the 2020 election and how is it going to affect it? I mean, if people can't vote or let's say, you know, right. even even if you do vote via the mail-in balloting, then you don't know if the vote is going to, you know, get to the polling place in time and all that sort of stuff. Well, actually, let me ask... Let me ask a bigger. Well, you know, you know, it, well, it really requires is a little bit of a dedication on the part of voters, because yes. there, almost everywhere you go, there is there is an election board where you can drop off your ballot. Yeah, and in most right. states that's okay. You know, it's just yeah. So I mean, I, I always tell people just think just think of October fifteenth as election day and vote early, and and that way it'll give you your vote a chance to get into somebody official's hands. And barring any like really serious malfeasance, you know, with the uh, with voter suppression, uh, I'm I'm sure that if you get the vote there early enough, it'll get counted. Yeah, for those for those who care, I mean, there's still there are people who are proactive and who will you know do the ap absolute best they can, and then yeah. there are those who are just sort of reluctant. So I'm hoping that people will be proactive and will actually get out and uh, vote. And you know, you're absolutely right. You don't need the mail post office. You know, if you can get to the polling station, you can just drop it in the box there. Well, and Mara got me to sign up for um, making calls, which when they did it, you know, when she did it the first weekend, I heard her doing it. I was like, this is cool. They were calling Arizona, telling people just what the deadlines were, what you needed to do and where you could get more information if you wanted it. Not even talking about the candidates or the issues, none of that. Just making sure people had the information on where to get registered and vote. And I, I was like, that's cool. Well, we did it last weekend, I think, and um, I was pissed because <laughs> all we were doing was cleaning the uh, the rolls. I think it was Pennsylvania. All we were doing was cleaning the DNC rolls. We were just going through and checking phone numbers. I, you know, nine out of ten calls I made were either disconnected or went straight to voicemail, and we weren't going to leave a message. I worked on a local campaign here and, and, and we have like a fraction where you guys have and there was a lot of like dead addresses. So it's going to yeah. happen. And, and I was pissed, but I'm willing to do that till the election. If we can, if I, you know, for the two people that I talked to who said, oh yeah, no, I'm supporting. Don't, I, I don't have time to talk about this right now, but I'm totally supporting. Like, great. I'm done. I can mark you up and keep moving. And then for the, I had a handful who, I think they lied. So after the first one or two, I changed the format. They gave us a format of what to say. And I changed it because I was like, you know, before I could get anywhere, they were already saying, oh, you wrong number. It's the wrong number. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm sorry. Uh, I will, you know, I'm calling from the, I'm calling from the Democratic Party and uh, I'll make sure that we take your number off the list. 
because I wanted them to know that if they really didn't want this, that it was gone. But if they were just lying to me because they thought I was spam or whatever. Well, that's like, the thing. Oh, you're, you're, fighting, you're fighting against a lot of like, you know, annoyance calls. Yeah. And, uh, they'll, 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 and they're just in their heads, they'll lump you in with it because people are always like, like blocking calls or, or answering yeah. phone calls that they don't want to talk to. And it just gets frustrating. I know me personally, I can't stand it. I get like about seven or eight spam calls. No, agreed. No. And I'll, for every one that I say, oh yeah, go ahead and talk to me. I'm blowing off two and I'm not answering, you know, half a dozen more. <laughs> so I get it. And I will, that's what I'm saying. I'll put the time in cause I want this to happen. And especially if we're calling those States where we need the pressure. Yes. You can have my time. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, we all should be vigilant and we all shouldn't take it for granted, but I've got this sense that things are going to work out better this time because, you know, Hillary Clinton, uh, although she was eminently qualified, was a flawed candidate. Yep. And she couldn't excite the Democrats. Yeah. And uh, and and Trump was, you know, he's Trump. He's a professional wrestling guy. I mean, you know, right. he's got kayfabe on his side. He, you know, he was able to get elected president without having to prove anything. Right. Other than the fact that he wasn't going to be like anybody else. Exactly. Well, we had like, you know, about three and a half years of not like anybody else, and it isn't what we thought it was going to be. So I think right. you're going to lose. You're going to lose some of those people. And it was so close that he only needs to lose some of those people. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, well, and, I, and I think the energy is, is right this time around. I mean, not just because I'm, you know, we're all jaded because we're Democrats here, but... Well, I figured really, you would talk about the convention because, oh my goodness. Exactly. No, I want to, I want to segue into that. So what did, what did you think? I thought I was very, very proud, especially the last night. Uh, if you're asking me personally, I, I think they did a good job because it was like, it was one of those situations where it was their, their chance to either succeed or have an unforced error. And right. um, and I don't think there was anything that was really embarrassing. There was yep. a couple of really inspirational moments. Yeah. And um, I think overall they got their message out and they looked like they were rational, sane human beings. I doubt Trump is going to have that easy of a time proving the same thing. Yeah. You, know, you, you have to have a certain amount of empathy, you know, uh, to be able to communicate a message. And all he can communicate is how he's going to crush other people and he's the best. Right. And there's enough evidence to prove that he's not the best at doing this job now. So oh, he's, yeah. he's starting to sound like he's full of shit. I watched <laughs> the first night. Um, I watched some of the second night. Um, but that Tuesday and Wednesday, we did our show on Wednesday. So Tuesday was tech and Wednesday was the show. So it was funny at one point, like Michelle Obama is speaking and I'm on Zoom, but I will not unmute because I just want to hear the end of her speech. I was horrible. I'm supposed you know, to be in rehearsal. I, I and I'm Michelle like, yeah, I'm here. I'm here, but no, I'm I'm listening. I, and I then the rest her. of them, I just pulled the speeches up and listened to speeches. But I did want to see the drive-in moment, which really wasn't as exciting for them to spend the whole week talking about this drive-in moment. It ended up not being very exciting. It was a typical, here they are. That was nice. But I'm like, you got a drive-in moment. Show me all those cars, please. I wanted them to, instead of clappy, like beeping their horns and stuff like that. <laughs> they did. They did. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I, I did see a little bit of that. Behind with oh, the that. Okay. flashing, and that was cool. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay, I didn't actually get to see uh, Biden's speech. Uh, you know, I, was, I tuned in for Obama's speech, you know, yes. just a chance to hear him talk again is always special. Uh, I love that guy. Speaking in I, complete sentences. <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't even that so much. Uh, and it wasn't even that he said something that was so groundbreaking. It's just... You know, there is a decent human being with a brain. Uh, you know, I just, I, I, I miss that guy. 
I really miss that guy. He was, he was funny, he's charming, he's personable, he's super knowledgeable, and he seems like he's a responsible human being. You know, it's like, what the fuck happened to us, <laughs> you know? Yeah, the one, the one, I mean, the one special moment, I mean, the 13-year-old, the uh, Brighton Harrington, I believe he is in uh, New Hampshire, who had a speech impediment. And he mm -hmm. talked about meeting with Biden. And I mean, that was sort of the, uh, because a lot of it is sort of, yes, you're moved by it, but you're sort of the built-in audience. But that was one of those touching moments where even if you're a diehard Republican, you have to really feel for this kid who is stuttering. Mm -hmm. But he talks about how Biden, you know, bonded with him because Biden right. stutters every now and then. What, so what night was that? That was the last night. Oh, damn. Okay, yeah. I will look it up. Yeah, there was a, there was a few moments like that that were really special. There was the the one guy who had ALS. Yes, uh, who Addy, just, uh, spoke very eloquently about you know his situation, his condition, and you know just like you know the moral responsibility of taking care of you know people, you know, and not always just taking care of yourself, taking care of each other, you know. Yes. And um, and then there was also the uh, that poor woman who lost her father. Uh, yes you know, to, to covid it's just kind of you know sometimes i feel like numbers especially when they start to get higher you you can't comprehend them you can't like you know when you hear the universe is like billions of light years across you can't even think about that i mean to me that doesn't seem that much different than you know a hundred thousand miles i can't fathom the difference because it's out of my brain range and i think that when you see a person act Actually have a story and suffering and, and see the emotion on their face you can you can empathize with them on a personal level and, and it makes the number of 150,000 sound 150,000 times worse because you see one person suffering mm -hmm. yeah know? I thought that was probably one of the most powerful moments when she said that her dad's only pre-existing condition was uh believe you know, voting voting for Trump yeah yeah, yeah, that was, uh, and uh, Sharon Stone, you know, Sharon Stone has been all over the media talking about her sister and um, I think there was another relative. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very powerful. Every, everyone is emoting and I, th I, not that I want to be cynical, but I think that COVID-19 was sort of a blessing in disguise because it really exposed, if anything, expo if anything, of all of the missteps that Trump has done, this has really exposed Donald Trump. Um, yeah, he he could he wasn't lucky. He thought he'd be able to get through four years without a big upheaval happening. But this would have happened with anything, whether it would have been a hurricane or wildfires or anything, anything massive thing that would happen. He would have been ill prepared to handle it because being prepared to handle something means that you give a shit about people. Yep, and, he, and, and that, it, it, he's a monster. Yeah, he he's really a monster. Is. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. He he really is. Um, did you have anything else for current events? Because I, you know, I think uh, that's no, that was that was the big one. <laughs> and with that, we are going to uh, let's get into an origin story, Jim Forniatis. And also, I was doing some research. You were also the author of The King Lives, an Elvis uh, Elvisceral adventure. Yeah, so you're an oh. artist. <laughs> you're a, uh, a songwriter. Mm. You uh, did the band. I mean, you were almost like the uh, I, I'll say in a good way, almost the Forrest Gump of uh the west coast <laughs> did a little bit of every, anything and everything so how did you get in how did you get involved in just um art i mean where did you grow up and all that stuff uh i grew up in new jersey um uh, about an hour southwest of new york city in monmouth county uh lived near the water i uh, loved the beach and uh as a kid growing up um i lived in a, a small little working class community and uh, was really all about conformity 
And uh, I had a difficult time at an early age. You know, I'm dyslexic, so I had a difficult time in school uh, early on. Uh, but the thing is, uh, the thing about being dyslexic is I think it teaches you to shoot your attention in like a million different directions. Hmm. And uh, I, I, I was always been a really good multitasker. I always had a lot of plates up in the air. Sometimes they break, but you know, the more plates you have up in the air, the, the more that you have that aren't broken. Any siblings, Dave? Uh, um, Jim? I have one brother. He's about five years older than me. I always consider me like the, uh, we better get it together and have another kid, baby. <laughs> yeah. Well, how was growing up in Jersey? I mean, uh, my, uh, it's funny, you mentioned Jersey. My parents just uh, vacationed in, I believe, Ocean City. And so that's one of the f favorite places they go to. Well, it was, it's a weird situation because, um, you know, I, we, we were like, we we're, you know, like many uh, rural, uh, not rural, um, suburban towns, we were uh, like self-segregated. And I grew up in a little town, you know, all white people. And a town over was a town keyport was predominantly black people. And, you know, there was definitely a lot of racism, even if it was just subtle. And there was a lot of sexism, and a lot of homophobia. I mean, you know, uh, I remember we you, back in the 70s, we had this whole movement called Disco Sucks. And one of the things we used to say was disco was for fags, which was, uh, you know, it's kind of funny to think about it now. It's kind of like, well, it, it kind of is, but that's not a bad thing. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's but, true. Yeah, but, uh, you know, it's just like it was kind of weird because I would always constantly uh, hop on my bike and run over a couple of towns to Keyport and go in the theater there and watch, you know, like, you know, black exploitation movies. And, uh, you know, hey, I go Jim. to the record store and buy Brothers Jim. Johnson records and stuff. And, hey, Jim, Jim. Know, I, was like, I was like, the one, uh, what? I'm sorry, Jim. We have a guest. We have David Stein. David, what's up, man? Hey, David. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. This, this, hold on. This something tells me this is not my weekly D and D group. What? <laughs> I got my dice. Oh, me and Norman me G. and David are part of an hey, exclusive Jim club. Hey, Jim Forniatus, Reg Clay, hey. I know you guys. Hey, we're part of an exclusive club. We're the only people who told Emperor Norton what to do. That's absolutely <laughs> right. They should have named that bridge after him. Really? <laughs> Actually, they should have named it after you, Jim. Oh, they—they, they, I, I know that they, the Clampers, E. Clampus Vitus. I've been yeah. trying to get that bridge renamed to Emperor Norton Bridge for a long time. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, I, hey, what's, what's hey, going what's on? Up? We uh, we interrupted uh, Jim uh, and David. Uh, for those, uh, David was also on the Yay episode number 37, so check that out. But Jim, you were talking about uh, your growing up in Jersey. And also, mm -hmm. yeah, disco. Everyone hated disco. As a matter of fact, I remember, I think, Chicago had the, uh, what was it, uh, the, what was it? I think it was the Cubs. They had the uh, the destroyed disco night, or um, right, yeah. Oh wow! You know, it's just you know, looking back on it now, there's a lot of disco that I like. You know, for one thing, back in the '70s, disco was done by session musicians. You know, a lot of really cool cats who are getting the groove going. I mean, some of it stunk, but then again, some rock suck sucks too. You know, so no genre is immune to sucking. Well, yeah. you know, hey, hey, if, it, if speaking, you know, if it weren't for disco and um, the divas of that time, like like Donna Summer. That song, I Feel Love, is like an, an electro hit that never would have happened if it weren't for disco. Right. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I remember Sylvester and the stylistic, the, the Dells. I mean, we can go on and on and on. But also, right around the same time of disco, you also have the underground of, of course, rap, but also punk. Punk was uh, right. getting big, although punk was still in the underground. Very few people knew about the, um, I'm trying to think, uh, the Ramones, and Ramones. Uh, hey yeah. check it out my shirt oh right on cbgb's yeah, yeah. 
Yep, I played CBGBs many times. When that did right? you play CBGBs, Jim? Excuse me? What, what, when? What, when? When did you, did you play there? Well, I, I lived in New York City from about 1985 to 1992. So I played pretty much, you know, like, like bi-monthly at CBGBs. Whenever I get a gig or whenever they need somebody to play exit music for a popular act, they would call up the rats. Nice. Well, <laughs> sort of like, like, you know, you don't have to go home, but you can't play hear music. <laughs> kind of, yeah. It would be kind of like I would basically play in people's backs as they slowly filed out of the club. <laughs> yeah. But for those, who, for those who don't know the history, so the history of rock and roll, they talk about how CBGBs, I mean, that's where Blondie began before she made her transition into disco. And Back in the old days. Yeah, Talking Heads. Um, you know, all I, have, I have a painting in my living room that I did when I was 18 of CBGBs from a photograph of the morning after a Blondie concert with all of the beer crates and all the garbage in the street <laughs> right out front of it with a poster in the window that said Sunday Blondie Sunday because she used to do these, these Sunday stints at, at CBGBs back in the day. Oh yeah. But I've got that still hanging in my living room. I just remember recently someone did a, a, a small miniature, uh, rec, uh, you know, scale model of the bathroom at CBGB's. I was, yeah. It was actually pretty accurate. And I, I wish there when I was myself, 16, I was going to ask you that the, the bathrooms are just like epic with all of the graffiti. There isn't an yeah, inch but left. The first thing I thought of was how they smell. Because oh. like, it's hard to forget that smell. Oh, right. <laughs> How did, how did, um, when did you move to the Bay Area? Because uh, when I think of, when I think of the darkroom, I really do think of that sort of the West Coast and the theater version of CBGBs and, um. Well, like thanks. That's a big compliment. <laughs> no, it is. I mean, and our I'm, bathroom was a little cleaner. Yeah. And Cafe Wab, you know, uh, that, that was a uh, London scene where, you know, the Beatles sort of did their thing before they became right. big. But well, uh, I, when, moved, I moved to, uh, to the Bay Area in 2001. And, um. I, I didn't get into San Francisco in 2002, and that's when I started working at Spanganga, which is another theater that was essentially like the dark room, only yeah. they also had an art gallery as well. And um, uh, I worked parties. with a guy Don't named Sean Kelly. <laughs> and the sex parties, yeah. And the sex parties. I with a guy named Sean Kelly, who was like really super awesome. He gave me my start. He allowed me to, uh, to direct my first couple of plays over there. And when he decided to close his theater, uh, he gave me his Rolodex and basically shot all of his customers over to me. And I was able to very easily walk around the corner, open up the dark room, and just, you know, like pretty much hit the ground running. Uh, he saved us about a couple of years of bullshit in getting the theater up and running. So I, I, I can't, help but, uh, can't help but give him props. So it was it basically it was me and Erin, and uh, my wife, uh, just decided to get everything done, you know, and... Uh, uh, she, we basically split up the stuff. Uh, I, I built the stuff. She uh, got everyone costumed and took care of the business end of it. We both went around and found people to do stuff and to uh, get ideas and stuff like that. So we got together with uh, her and Rhiannon and uh, Ty McKenzie. Yeah, Ty McKenzie, who is, I believe she's still the, um, the technical works. director of um, Phoenix Theater, working with Linda S. Frederick. Right, but oh. she also has stage works as well. Yeah, no, she's awesome. How yeah. how was the transition? Because you know, being a rock and roller, then getting into theater, that had to have been a big transition. Um, well, the thing is, I, I had I had studied um, writing and directing in college when I was in New York. But the theater scene in New York is all about like you know, it's basically like a farm club for Broadway, and it's really hard to get in 
there because it, you know you, there's a huge waiting list. There's a big pecking order there. So I would have had to wait for a lot of people to die before I even got a chance of doing something decent. So I, you know, I kind of gave it up. Uh, but when I came out to uh, San Francisco, uh, the music scene was something I just, after having been in a band for like 15 years, I didn't want to start from scratch. So when I got the opportunity to work in theater uh, with a lot of these people who are involved with like the Cacophony Society, it was a nice in and it was a chance for me to do something I hadn't done in a long time. So it was a little bit of a transition, but the way I like to work out with things and the way Aaron likes to work with things is, you know, we, we, we like to make sure that everybody's having fun on stage. And in that way, it wasn't that much different than being in uh, my band, the rats, because we were kind of like a satirical punk band. You know, our whole thing was, uh, was making fun of the rock star pose. So uh, when we got to the dark room, it was all about making fun of like, you know, some of the more aspect, uh, serious aspects of theater and pop culture. So and it was the same kind of uh, satire. So it was, in one way, it was a big transition because it, was, it wasn't music. But in another way, it was kind of the same because the vibe was the same. Yeah, the rock and roll thing. I want to bring David in. I mean, David, how did you get involved in the dark room? And what, what did it mean to you for you? Well, you know, I first got involved with the dark room in maybe 2004, five, right around there. I, um, I actually heard about it through... You know, there was a big buzz going on at the time because um, people were talking about this theater that was doing a version of The Princess Bride on stage. And it was kind of like, you know, people were just saying, you know, how could they do this movie on a stage the size of a, of, <laughs> like a parking space? I mean, That's it, what it used was, to call it. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it, was, it was tiny. And, and, and it did its run, and then it got extended. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta go see this. Everybody's talking about it. And then it got extended again. I'm like, I, I, I gotta go. And I think it was extended three times. Um, and, then we did, and then we did it another yeah. time a decade later. That's right. But I finally got to see it in one of the extensions and, that, and then I knew what everyone's talking about. It was, it was magical. It was, it was punk. It was, <laughs> I mean, the illusion that was created on stage of, of, of the scenes from the film were so ingenious with just, um, specific props, no set, um, but it really just compelled the audience to use our imaginations, which that's was, it. Was that like, was it. Was it was like all radical. about using your imagination. Yeah. yeah and then, but but you know, at the time, I mean, that's kind of like radical. When you think of like theater, um, you think big productions. You think ACT sets, costumes. You think of 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 all the trappings of ways to entice people to come and see it. And you know, for decades. The older generation has been talking about theater is dying. We need to get young people involved. And, but they were just missing the point. It wasn't like more stuff. It wasn't bigger sets. It wasn't like Wicked or, you know, props to all those big shows. But that's not what excites young people. What's radical is the creativity involved. And, well, yes, yeah. you know, my, our, our philosophy always was, you know, to try and make things as egalitarian as possible. Because... You know, if you have to worry about building a gigantic set, uh, then that changes things. It makes it so that it's more expensive and harder to do. And the harder things are, the harder they are to pull off. Yeah. And, and you guys were like, I, I always thought that. I always thought that 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 if you started building elaborate sets, it shows a black box theater up to be for what it is. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you just have a black curtain behind you, then basically you're you're floating. You're floating in the ether, and then uh, it leaves your brain to basically fill in all the spaces. 
I'll never forget the one scene um, in, in, in the show where uh, you, Jim was in it. Uh, and you were Fezzik. Yeah, yeah, you were Fezzik and you were, you were climbing with, um, <laughs> who, who climbing. Was on your, you know, you had like Nancy on your, you had somebody on your back and you're supposed to be climbing. And you were and you were miming it, but it was like with with. I was miming it, and I was bouncing up and down, and we all bounced up and down in unison. Yeah. And yeah. I went like, uh, 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 and and yeah. things. Whenever we did that kind of stuff, that was that actually got a laugh from the audience. It's kind of like I can't believe they're doing this laugh. Mm, right. It was just it was just the joy of seeing you guys have fun. Like you're just kind of playing in your living room, like you know any theater kid probably did for their relatives. Um, and it was like, we're all in your house. And that's the other thing that was just so special about the dark room. When I first heard about it, um, my friend Wendy Welch, who was, uh, we used to volunteer at um, Actors Ensemble of Berkeley. I had just directed a show, The Buckeye, outdoors in John Hinkle Park, um, utilizing all of the, um, the, the, um, the techniques that were done there before with, with Cal Shakes when they were there. And everybody, you know, the critics loved it. Everyone had a good time. Wendy said, you know, why don't you try uh, Black Box next? You've done like a big outdoor show. Why don't you try doing something really small? And there's this, there's this company, The Dark Room. And I think she first started telling me about Princess Bride. Well, then she forwarded me an email um, from The Dark Room looking for writers and directors to adapt stage versions of The Twilight Zone, the favorite Twilight, Twilight Zone. Zone. Yeah. And, and they, they did it the year before. You guys did it at Spanganga first. Yes, the first one was yeah. at Spangenberg. And then the second one was at, was at the darkroom, right? Yes. Yeah, so that was the one that Wendy said I should get involved with. And, uh, and when I first walked in the door, Aaron greeted me. And it was like, just like meeting your mom at the door. It's like, come in, come isn't in. She, isn't she wonderful? Welcome. Wonderful. She's like, come in. This, this is our theater. This is our pirate radio station. Pay no attention to that. Because... <laughs> that Ty had her, had her pirate cat radio behind the bar because it used to be a sushi bar, restaurant, old saloon for years and uh, still, had the, still had the thing to un, un, uh, open your bottle at the end of the bar, yeah. which is very cool. Um, but she took me on a tour and then and it was like, you're in a theater, but you're in someone's home, which I just thought was just super <laughs> wonderful and welcoming. And, yeah, um, we, we lived in the back. And they lived there, which is so cool. And I got to, and she showed me there's a kitchen, showed me the back. She was taking me on the tour as if, like, I don't know, like I was going to be a roommate or something. And I was just there <laughs> to, to, to see what this whole Twilight Zone thing was about. And it was so... Yeah, Aaron, Aaron always generous. wanted to invite people into the family. That was, that's yeah, her general pose. Like you know, she was very great that way. Yeah, from day one, from the very first moment I met her, I felt like I was part of a family. And... Um, and, you know, my experience of being uh, an actor in San Francisco, um, for the most part, when you're talking to a producer or, or casting director or you're auditioning, there's always this kind of distance, this sort of cold professionalism. There's a formality. There's a, a formality that I don't know where it came from. Who, theater school, maybe. I, I don't know. But that was the other radical aspect of the dark room was that, like, oh, fuck all that formality. We're, we're well, here I, to have fun. I have an idea where the formality came from. Yeah, as I feel like most artists spend like you know a portion of their lives with people telling them that what they're doing is a waste of time. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes people in creative situations, when they attain a certain level of respectability and notoriety, they feel that they have some kind of like Calvinist 
congregation to not enjoy themselves <laughs> to yeah. like and treat it seriously seriously yeah. uh, we didn't we never took it seriously and we always said you know we don't take this seriously we invite you to do the same you know absolutely and having yeah. said that some of the best theater i've ever seen in my life was done on that little uh, parking lot stage um the other I thing we, to, the other thing we yeah. did is we we never tried to tell people they couldn't do something that's, I think that's, that's why you thing. that's why you say that yeah. sometimes you saw it, like stuff there that you wouldn't see before is because yeah. a lot of times people would be like no you can't do that you can't do that and we're kind of like ah well give it a shot there's the stage you know, I want to I want to bring Norman in because you know as an equity actor you you've done you've seen everything and you've directed and you've acted <laughs> seen there, everything is, not exactly <laughs> but is there I mean because that's a good point because we think of theater as this formal thing and there's one director who's sort of the master or mistress of everything who's controlling what's going on their producers and there's a formality and you have to have your resume done so and you have to have your headshot done so and whatever um is there an argument to be made that maybe that's what's why theater may not be growing in certain areas because there's this formality maybe it should be sort of looser well i think that's why it is growing in exactly these ways i remember so david and i think we talked about it on the episode David auditioned for me way back in the day. And I think you were new to the Bay Area at that time, yeah? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, like 2000, 2001, yeah. maybe? So, yeah. yeah, 2001, 2002, somewhere in that zone. Mm -hmm. I remember going to Darkroom. I remember going and seeing one of the, was it the usual suspects? It was something like that. It was, uh, no, um, Reservoir Dogs? I don't remember. Oh, well, Reservoir Dogs was a Spanganga, but it was one okay. of the productions that we did. Yeah. Uh, uh, maybe it was, it was a Goodfellas? I, I, all I remember is hearing about it, and I'd been, by that point, I kept hearing about this little space in the mission. So I was curious. It probably was Spanganga, because they did Reservoir Dogs. I remember, because I did okay. the soundtrack for it. I, I, well, put together I remember Raven. seeing David's name on it and going, oh, God, that guy. No, let me see what's going on, because I know him. And feeling like, okay, it sort of legitimized it, honestly. This is somebody I know who is out there in the scene that I'm familiar with in a totally different environment. And yeah, from the moment of walking in and people with their beers, and I was like, uh, yes. what is going on here? Yeah. Um, to this <laughs> joyful thing that was happening, not just on stage, but in the audience as well. I think that's, you know, I think that's the history of some of the best of theater. I mean, Shakespeare's time is famous for things that were intentionally thrown at the groundlings, things that were aimed at that audience. I, I think theater is always going to grow in those ways. And it's actually a conversation that I'm hoping that we'll spend some time on in the next month. Um, how do you approach this now in the era of film and TV and, and all kinds of digital media? Why are you doing something live? Why is that important? I think this kind of exactly. thing answers that question. Exactly, because, you know, I think a lot of times people think that throwing money at a stage production will make it better. But to me, the more money you throw at a stage production, the more it starts to resemble a film. Yeah. You know, and it's like that kind of strips away what makes theater special. You know, well, and also, uh, when they start throwing money, they always start throwing money everywhere else but at the performers. Exactly. Uh, you know, as just to me, I don't, I, like, I always used to, I used to bristle at having like a projector as part of a show. Because mm -hmm. I thought to myself, people are hardwired to want to watch TV. So if you have a projector kicking during your performance, people are going to look at that and not the actors. Right. You know, so it's just to me, it's just like the actors are enough. You know, like I always used to say, I remember one of the first arguments I had with someone I was working with is they wanted to build a cockpit when we did uh, Dr. Strangelove. And I said, cockpit schmockpit. 
Fuck the cockpit. It's going to look cheap no matter what we do. All you need for a cockpit is two folding chairs and one guy with his arms stretched out like this, going like this. Bam, you're in a cockpit. Jim, do you remember in um, the Twilight Zone, the second one, um, I did a I did a show with, with Warden Lawler, uh, Perchance to Dream. It was uh, the one where the guy is sleep deprived and every time he falls asleep, he sees yes. Maya the cat, the cat woman. And in right. the episode, it was like at a funhouse carnival. So Wendy Welch, who um, was, was in it dressed in a cat suit with a whip, and I think I used like a Nine Inch Nails song for that. Uh, but but, there, but the, at, the very, at the very end, um, Warden has to um, jump out of a, of a you know, very tall window in a city. So all yeah. we had was just a black tap hanging, and he went, you know, he'd go over to where the window is supposed to be, he'd reach his arms into the, into the black, and then we do the sound effect. He'd do the motion of the window opening, and then he'd open it, and he'd hear the, the crowd on the, you know, below. And yeah, and so that was the window that he jumped out of. And all we did was a blackout for when he jumped out. And of course, him on a microphone just going, ah. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm, also, I'm, a, I'm a sound engineer. So what we, what we didn't have in the way of visuals, we would make up for with a lot of complicated sound cues. When we did, uh, when we did um, uh, uh, Young Frankenstein on stage, I actually set it up to be quadraphonic sound. So like you have like the lightning, like filling the entire oh, wow. theater. And, and the speakers are, cool. speakers are in particular areas too? Yeah. But the thing is, is that, you know, uh, one of the basic uh, principles that we had at the dark room, and it kind of feeds into what David was saying, is that we never considered something, you know, like a disaster. You know, to, to us, we were always, it was always a study in trying to take something that was a, a, a liability and flip it around and make it work for us. You know, lemons and lemonade kind of thing. You know, like, like when we did, um, when we did uh, Clue. You know, you're supposed to be in all these different rooms in this gigantic house. Well, of course, we had this tiny little stage, and Clue is a huge cast, so we had all these people crammed in this tiny little stage. And the thing is, we had to go from like, like you know, let's we're we're in the library. Let's go to the conservatory. So what we did is we had everybody turn around, face away from the stage, and then the lights went out in the darkness. They turned back around towards the stage, and then when lights came up and they were looking around, going, "Oh, we're in the library." And and, and you know, not only not only did it solve the problem, but it got a laugh because people are like, "You're in the exact same spot," you know. It's when right. we're fooling everybody. Yeah, so it's yeah. like you, you can't fool the audience, but you can have fun with them, you know. Yeah, and that's, that's the thing. I mean, you have to trust that the audience can have an imagination all of its own, and it puts pressure on the actors. I mean, it gives the actors, "Hey, listen, you're not going to have props to hide behind. You're not going to have a costume to hide behind. You're not going to have the set." This well, let, let me stop you there. We actually had really good costumes. Erin was our costumer. And in fact, she used to say that the costumes were the set because she would dress yeah. people up so ornately. And, uh, and we, we usually had pretty decent props, too. I remember when we did Batman, I built this really weird uh, shrink ray gun that had, like, tubes and weird, like, shit coming off at the end of it. And it blanked, you know, and stuff like that. So we did have that kind of stuff. It's just it was really more about the sets. Because I always thought the sets, it, it, it black made it, things disappear and the sets made them look small. Yeah, but, but also the actors. I mean, I remember my, of course, my wonderful experience with the darkroom, not only the Twilight Zone, but also uh, the Gong Show. The Gong Show was just amazing. Yes. And I remember uh, David, Dave. I mean, Dave, you know, you and I, we met, we did a performance uh, with the EastEnders. Uh, it was a night's oh. escape. And uh, you brought me in to uh, to be Jean Jean the uh, dancing machine. I was like, okay, we're the <laughs> show. and uh, <laughs> and 
and you just went on Craigslist. I mean, this was even before, I mean, you know, social yeah. media, just bringing in all sorts of people in. Hey, if you got to act, if you got whatever you want to do, come on if in. If you think you've got no talent, please, we want you. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and I was like, wow, this is what it's all about. This is what the darkroom experience is about. And, you know, all of these crazy. Which is, the only structure was we had, we had Craig Dickerson, who was the anchor who played our Chuck Barris. We had our, our celebrity, three celebrity judges for every show, which we tried to rotate. I think we had about a dozen different judges on six, on six nights. Um, we had a night where Jim was a judge, um, Eric uh, Geek Boy, and uh, Michael M. Yeah. Uh, I got Sharon, a video of that. Yeah, it was Sherilyn Conley, yeah, Sherilyn Conley was there. Sherilyn, we even had um, Sean Daniels, the casting director at the time from Cal Shakes. As a judge, and and didn't clue the judges into anything that they were going to see, and and yeah, you're right, Reg. We just got some random people from Facebook, some people that I actually knew that were that were actors, including uh, you and um, oh gosh, who else was in it? Um, ah, so long ago. But um, where you guys are such great sports, and some of you who just were going to get gonged, um, knew you were going to get gonged. Some people who didn't think they were going to get gonged. Did. Yeah, and, there were some were people who actually took it seriously and thought they were going to win. <laughs> I, I think that was like almost twenty years ago, and they're still angry about it. <laughs> yeah, I remember the great. I remember the great Satan, the great Satan, and I remember uh, the the girls who had the lollipops and they oh, were the popsicle <laughs> twins. <laughs> the popsicle was, twins, and yeah. the pianist was Rona Siddiqui, who is now on Broadway. She's yeah. right. Yeah, I think she, I don't know if it's kinky book, books or, um, but she's doing some amazing things, but she started at the darkroom. And uh, well, I won't, I won't say she started at the darkroom, but she was, she, she graced, she, she graced our productions a few absolutely. times. She also, she played all the piano for me when we did Wicker Man and she was fabulous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, she was wonderful. We were so lucky. The, the energy was just amazing. So how did, I mean, um, and not to get, not to be a downer, but how did it end? Uh, well, you know, we were living there, and it was not zoned for living and working, as many art spaces are. And what ended up happening was, is uh, the, the neighborhood changed. Uh, money started moving in. There was the tech boom. You know, we're trying to start come in, and tech bros were, like, starting to move in. So developers were looking around. They were looking for anything they could find. And uh, they, it became clear to them that we were a target. You know, we, we could easily be busted for the situation that we were in. So people started ratting us out. It would be like on a weekly basis, we'd get, you know, people coming in, uh, you know, and like, you know, saying, oh, we got a call in about yada, yada, yada. We need to come and take a look around. So what ended up happening was, is we had to close the theater. You know, it was, it was either close the theater or move out and we couldn't afford to move out. So the, the joke was on them in a way because they wanted to get rid of us and they didn't. We ended up staying there for another couple of years, you know, so they weren't able to get the space, but they did screw us as far as the theater was concerned. Yeah, it's a real shame because it was it wasn't just your home, but it was a home to a lot of individuals who probably would not have even thought about auditioning at the ACT or, you know, some of the other theater companies. I mean, this was, you know, sort of a, you know, we, 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 we kind of like to think of ourselves as community theater. It's just our community was like artists and musicians and all those people. So they would take time out from some of their more legitimate things to come and do goof around on stage with us. Yeah, this you know, it, it was such a thrill getting to to be at your wedding there, Jim. And I, and I think I sang even <laughs> yeah we had a karaoke thing set up afterwards in the theater oh wow i didn't know you guys were married there that's awesome yep uh, we were married there and uh, our our we were the, it was officiated by sean owens who uh, was dressed up like the pope i and threw the funny him part about his uh, bachelor was, party 
And, and the, yeah, the bachelor party the night before, he was dressed up as a stripper. Yeah, yeah, but do you remember he, <laughs> what he did? He didn't strip. <laughs> yeah, I know. He Instead, he pulled out, like, from his clothes, pulled out a, uh, a, a patty and cooked it and uh, had, like, you know, some lettuce and a tomato and a bun and made a cheeseburger and brought it to me on a plate while singing uh, I'm a Woman. I'm a woman. <laughs> oh, the Anjali thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Does it surprise you, Jim, because the um, – the exit theater, they sort of taken over the uh, the Twilight Zone thing and sort of the exit is sort of the last bastion of that sort of rebel theater that I think about. Well, not, not just them, uh, also um, Piano Fight. Uh, yeah. Rob Reddy and those guys out there are doing a great job uh, kind of keeping like the comedy theater aspect of what we were doing going. You know, the uh, and, the, and the exit, uh, not to take away from them, uh, but they're not as comedy based as we were. You know, they we do- know Piano they, Fight they, expanding and, 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 to they, Oakland. They, yes. yes. Yeah, they they're going to the flight, flight deck. They're going to manage the flight deck. How yeah. awesome. Yeah, you see, the thing I liked about the darkroom is uh, we were we were very comedy-based. We had stand-up comedians. We had plays. You know, we did the bad movie night thing. But it, most oh, of it centered movie. around humor. There wasn't a lot of drama there. Not that I disliked drama, but, you know, I felt like, you know, my favorite thing to do is to make people laugh. You know, I figured in, in the world we live in, that's kind of like, you know, that's God's yeah. errand. Young Frankenstein, young Frankenstein is like one of the best theater experiences I've ever had. It was so much fun. Uh, you, you were great in it too. You know, I, uh, <laughs> one of the things, I, let me blow his horn a little bit. One of the things about uh, that play and also when we did Star Wars is I wanted to set it apart from the, uh, from the film in a way. Uh, so I had uh, two people who are like the village idiots acting as audience surrogates to kind of like talk about what was going on and react to things. Mm -hmm. And David was one of them. And it was great because they would sit there and they would like, they would point out the ridiculousness of what was going on on stage. You know what I learned from that show? How much I hate wearing a fake mustache. And what a pain <laughs> in the ass. Fake facial hair is during a show. And try to keep you it know, on your some face. Some of the biggest laughs. That, we use so much goddamn tape. We use up as a whole roll and it just would not stay on my sweaty fucking lip. Some, some of the <laughs> biggest laughs we got was, was mustache fails. Mustache film, absolutely. Remember we, actually... we were doing, uh, we were doing uh, Goodfellas, and at one point, you know, Henry Hill was being grilled by two DEA cops, and one of them was Dan Foley, and he had this, like, walrus, like, you know, like, Wilford Brimley mustache on that was poorly attached, and he would be sitting there going, you know what's going to happen to you, pal? And they would, like, start flapping like this, <laughs> and they would both be trying not to crack up. It was great. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> we've hit the one-hour mark, so I want to be respectful of people's time. Um, um, what uh, what's a lasting impression do you have? I mean, do you, are you still involved in it, or are you? I mean, what what's next for you? I mean, you well, I'm involved in the fact that uh, I still contribute to the Twilight Zones. Uh, I, what I did is I passed off the whole production uh, to Danny Spinks from uh, Dreams on the Rocks Productions, and uh, she's she's been doing a great job keeping it alive, and she even is nice enough to keep calling it the Dark Rooms uh, Twilight Show. You know, even though she doesn't have to, it's all hers now. Mm -hmm. But uh, she's great, and uh, you know, I'm I'm still sound guy, so she's really really nice about every time the production comes up to give me a call and let me contribute. Uh, you know, sound design to the shows. Nice. Uh, other than that, I'm I'm not as involved as I used to be. It's it's the way it is. You know, I I, I try not to get like maudlin about it. Uh, it's hard for me to be upset about it being over because I got to do it for 12 years which is awesome. <laughs> you know, some people never get to do what we did at the dark room and I did it for 12 years. So that was, yeah. Cool. And, those yeah, and, and, and of course, of course, that's where me and Aaron met and, and became, uh, 
you know, uh, and we're able to kind of work together creatively. So it's always going to be special because of that. Yeah. And does it surprise you that people still remember? I mean, the very fact that I called you and, and you know, we were talking about this, does it shock? It's like, wow, people still remember. Well, I, I hate to sound like, uh, you know, uh, like I'm blowing my own horn, but I, I knew instinctively that I couldn't pay anybody to act. You know, everyone was really nice about donating their skills. Um, you know, we were on such a shoestring budget. We were always like a show tanking away from closing. So the only way I could could pay them was to make sure that they had a, uh, an experience that they would remember. And um, in that sense, I felt like we really succeeded because everyone always wanted to come back and do shows with us. Even if they were working at other theaters and doing other stuff, they were like, they were always telling me, I can't wait to come back to the dark room because that's when they really had fun. You, you know, know it, so, it is isn't. Uh, no, 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 no. I, I was just going to toot your horn, horn because, you know, we've had, there's been talks about, you know, uh, exclusivity and people, um, there, there's been a thing called the living uh, document where there are actors talking about their experiences on stage. And usually it's negative. Usually they come into a big production, they're even paid, mm -hmm. but they're, they're either talking about stories that don't reflect them or they're victims of either sexual harassment or whatever it is. And it's so, so different from the experiences of the darkroom. People talk about the darkroom, their faces light up. They're like, wow, we had so much fun. You know, we were drinking and laughing right. and we had so much fun on stage and everyone was included. And so that's the experience, that's the energy. Yeah. That, that, uh, was the, that was the other thing I think is for me as, as, as the, basically the technical director, or, or I mean the uh, artistic director, uh, um, and very often the director, was uh, I, I really, bristled at the notion of uh tyrannical directors to me it's just kind of sure you can run it that way but it's a really shitty way to run it uh i always told people i always wanted to hear all their ideas and david will bear me out i always listen to everybody's ideas i always told them no has to be an acceptable answer sometimes but i felt like i always functioned better when people were chiming in sometimes people would like make me laugh at rehearsals and i'll be like okay that's in everybody write it in you know Right, David? Absolutely, Jim. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was yeah, truly collaborative. I mean, if something was funny, it was funny. You know, there, that was the best part about developing, um, you know, developing a script like Young Frankenstein, like, like Star Wars, like, like Batman. I mean, uh, it, it, you know, it wasn't enough to be like absolutely like, you know, it wasn't this holy reverent thing that we're holding on to where we have to, you know. Yeah, what's the point of that? You can go see the movie. To me, I always felt like if I'm going to do something like Star Wars, I want to give people the experience of seeing it for the first time again. Absolutely, yeah. Reg, do you you remember you were in a Twilight Zone? I was in Twilight Zone. Had a wonderful, wonderful and time. And you were such a good sport because I wrote you into it as 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 yourself, who played Jean Jean the Dancing Machine, but you were incredibly offended and pissed off by... <laughs> I was the pompous actor. Oh yeah, that's right. I you you went to Tish, right? You went to, you were actually an accomplished actor. Hey, I went to Tish too. <laughs> there you go, right? Hey, and, and, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and, no. I put, and I put myself in it as a guy who couldn't shut up um, for an entire year based on that Twilight's episode, The Silence. Yeah, it's typecasting, David. Yeah, right, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 barrel of laughs. We had a yeah. lot of fun. Which one is the silence? Um, it's the one where I, a guy takes a bet that he won't speak for a year, and it turns out at the end that the guy was, was, was bluffing. He didn't have the money to pay him, and the guy actually cut his tongue out so that he would do it. Right. Spoiler. <laughs> right. Oh, right. I do remember that now, yes. He cut his, he cut yeah. his vocal cords. 
So, so I was wearing a scarf the entire time. And then, you know, you pull it down with the big scar reveal. And I remember Sadie Anomaly was like my, my scar makeup artist. And like each night it was not, it was not bloody enough for her. So I missed it. I missed it. One of my entrances cause she was having to slather it up. No, not enough. You need more, more blood. Then you really need to see it. <laughs> no, those are fun, fun times. And, um, it's, you know, it's a shame that people can't experience it now, but uh, there were wonderful memories and it's still part of Bay Area Theater. So that's why I wanted to have you on. Well, thank um, you very much. I feel like things will keep popping up, you know, for example, like, like you know, Piano Fight. That, you know, there'll always be a void for things like that, I think. And people will always step up and do it. I, I like to say that I'm special, but I, I like to think that I, I at least pulled it off. Yes, yeah, you theater did. Will, theater will make a comeback. We will rise from the ashes. Of, of, of literally the ashes yeah. <laughs> and of the social distancing. And when, you know, we're, we're able to socialize again, I mean, look out, it's going to make the seventies look like, <laughs> you know, Barry Goldwater's fifties. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All righty. So uh, let's, let's get into shout outs, birthdays, Norman. Um, just checking. Oh, uh, looks like it. Is that today? I think that's today. Come on. Arr. Um, yeah, I, I got a short list today, thankfully. <laughs> I, I love it when I can say, oh, gosh, maybe people weren't just having sex all the time. Um, <laughs> so today, uh, the first one is Steve Crumb um, is a guy, is an actor that I met. Um, he's back in Philadelphia now, but he was out here. And we did a show at the Afri African American Shakespeare Company. And what I loved was every night after we finished rehearsal, I was living in the East Bay, so he would walk me downtown to get to BART. And I just figured I could increase, I could decrease my BART ride or my BART time, because going down into BART is like this cavern. It's horrible. Um, so I would rather walk out in the air for a few blocks and go to the next station. He would walk me all the way downtown, and occasionally we would smoke a little something on the way. So uh, that's okay. Fun memories. Um, and then um, and I normally try to keep it within the week, but yesterday was Brian Dyer's birthday. And he's an amazing Bay Area musician. Uh, he does body music. He does um, all kinds of jazz and funk. And so he had a wonderful little party last night that I got to go to in his yard. Um, that was cool. Just a few, not even a dozen folks there to celebrate with him. Uh, P.J. Bracey is a young man that I met when I was teaching at the East Bay Center in Richmond and um, just dynamic young man. And I always hate when I got somebody like that because I know in training programs, most people are going to go off to something else in life. But when you meet somebody who is truly talented, you're like, please, I hope you stay with this. So I, I hope this shout out reminds him that I'm thinking about him and hoping he's still doing it. Uh, Danielle Teis is an actress, Bay Area actress, who's just amazing. And uh, we did a little show at a place in San Francisco called the Beverly Hills Playhouse, which I can't honestly recommend, but um, it's a strong, um, that piece that we did was a strong, beautiful piece, uh, Emmett and Ava. And she played the mother of a young woman who had died. And I played the father, single father of a young man who had died. They died, the young people had died in a car accident. And we were just meeting and the white parents did not know that their daughter was in a relationship with a black man until we have this conversation. It was, it was a wonderful little reveal. And Danielle and I have known each other for a long time. And so finally getting a chance to work together was wonderful. 
Um, Kelly Ground is, uh, I'm a union member and she was our rep for a while and she is still very much an advocate for what's going on for union folks here in the Bay Area. Uh, Mika Michelle Castro is an actress. I met with the work that I'm currently doing. I uh, do standardized patient work at UCSF Medical. Um, med students have to interview us and figure out what is wrong with our characters. And Oh my God, a friend of mine uh, who just passed away recently, uh, oh. uh, Frederick Meade used to do that down in, Lu in Louisiana. Uh, yeah, it's, um, oh, it's a Frederick weird work. <laughs> yeah, he did. But, um, but fun, and it makes, you, it makes you a fucking hypochondriac. I wake up with night sweats and I'm like, oh crap, is this a <laughs> character that had cancer? Am I? Yeah. But uh, yeah, she's a very fun woman. Uh, Clive Worsley um, has been in the Bay Area forever, actor, director. Oh, teacher. Clive. Um, I don't know Clive if he's still doing it, but he was running the education program at Cal Shakes last I checked. Um, and Dave Mayer, who has been doing um, stage combat for pretty much everybody in the Bay Area. Um, his birthday is coming up this week. And finally, a playwright. Don't get as many playwrights on the list as I wish I had. Prince Gomovia, um, wonderful. I, I want to say young because he always looks like, he looks like a Filipino um, a Pee Wee Herman. Um, more stylish, slightly more stylish, um, but amazing writer. So those are the birthdays I have for this week. All right. My birthday list is uh, quick. Joel Knopf, he is a... Um, a music writer, and I've worked with them a couple of times at the um, the musical cafe, and so that's a wonderful little space. I've talked to about it beforehand, where um, Madeline Puccioni and also um, Richard um, I can't remember his last name, but in any case, they run it, and uh, they do it twice every year for uh, budding music musical writers uh, to get the, to do their pieces and Joel Knopf he has acted and sang and he'll he's also produced on that his birthday is today also um, Mimi Totten a good friend of mine a great singer um, and an actress and she was in my little mini musical Mia she her birthday was yesterday so happy birthday Mimi on Monday um, a Philippine actor Patrick Silvestri uh, actor and also a playwright He's been involved in Bendelstiff for a long, long time. His birthday is tomorrow. On Wednesday, Tina Marzell. She is a, um, an actress, and I've worked with her with the Playwright Center for San Francisco. Her birthday is Wednesday. Thursday is Aaron Henney. Aaron Henney wrote a wonderful piece called uh, Mesmeric Revelation, and I'm pointing the poster right there. In any case, we worked at Central Works, and he was a writer at Central Works, and he does great work. I think he's in L.A. now. Um, and the last two I have, Pamela Hicks, she is a, a vocal teacher, and she was my vocal coach for several pieces that I did at the, uh, the Douglas Morrison Theater um, when we did, um, oh, Candide, and also... Um, you guys did Candide, that's great. Yeah, we did Candide, Grey Gardens, oh my God, I, I still remember the, the high B flat I had to hit, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the last one, both you and I know her, Norman, uh, Michaela Bennett. You remember Michael? Michaela, yes. Yeah, or Michaela. Um, Michaela, yes. I think yeah. she did go by Michaela. And she, of course, uh, she and I were in the piece that Norman directed, Before the Dream, the uh, life and um, mysterious the death. death and mysteri the mysterious death and life of Richard Wright. Yes. That's exactly right. And she was one of the biographers. And her birthday is Saturday. <clears throat> and so that is it. Um, Jeff, say, aren't you going to sing? 
<laughs> no, you don't, no, you no, don't no, do that. <laughs> but uh, okay. David, thank you so much for coming on. You uh, you crashed in. Um, so and I, I wanted you. Yeah, sorry, to my thunder, pal. <laughs> what? Thanks for stealing my thunder, pal. Of how I something blossoms in the Bay Area. This has been wonderful. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. it's, it's really, actually in all seriousness, it was great seeing you, David. Jim, I, I, I owe you a trip. I need to make a pilgrimage up there. Oh, that's right. You got to come and pose in front of the sign. I, you know what? I think I'm going to do that really soon if I can sort of navigate the flyers. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Well, um, you be safe up there, man. Oh, yeah, we are. We're, we're uh, before luckily, we go, I just want to say really we're, sorry. There's, there's some natural barriers between us and that, so we're okay. You, you know, take care of yourself. I'm really sorry to hear about Michael M. And uh, Yeah. Uh, it's, um, you know, um, everybody, send, everybody now, send good thoughts out to Michael M. He's uh, one of the founding members of the Cacophony Society, he's, uh, and he's a brilliantly talented guy. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Well, uh, Jim, Jim, uh, did everybody, did you have a good time? Absolutely. Who's your friend, Jim? Who, what? Who's your friend there? This is, this is Pamela. Pamela. She's yeah, Pamela is a, Takit, is a Takit's OG. I'm replanting her in a two-gallon bag. It I saw you growth. doing that. <laughs> Multitasking, I like it. <laughs> hey, you know, I figured I'd, I'd share with the public. <laughs> there you go. Well, let me give you my last blurb. So uh, the yay, people are watching this already on YouTube and we'll have links so you can like and share. And if you don't like, let us know, you know, how we can improve the show, all that stuff. Uh, if you're listening to this, we're on SoundCloud. And also speaking of SoundCloud, Jim, you have a SoundCloud page as well because you're still producing music. Yes, uh, I like I said, I'd been uh, since I moved out of San Francisco. I've been concentrating more on music. I revived my band, The Rats of Unusual Size, and uh, I have a SoundCloud page. It's just under my name, Jim Forniatis, and um, I'm sure that you'll provide a link or something like that. Absolutely. And it, it just has uh, music that I've done, uh, mostly from the band, but also so, some stuff from theater productions. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, I hope you enjoy it. The most recent. Uh, song that we released is called thanks but no thanks it starts out with a clip from james baldwin and it's just basically about you know tired of waiting tired of waiting for change yeah no it's awesome change, piece, change, uh, change is long overdue yeah 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 it's a piece of uh, dealing with black lives matter and i totally appreciate that and uh yeah we'll definitely put a link to it so people can uh link to that and also for those who are listening to us uh we're on any app that you listen to your podcast if you're an apple user there's that purple little uh app uh, um, podcast app that you can listen to. If you're a uh, uh, Android user, you can go on the SoundCloud app or just go on soundcloud.com. The Yay was created by theater people for theater people. If you have a show you want to advertise or if you just want to advertise yourself, let us know. Hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram. I'm at Reg Space Clay. And I'm at Hoosier Hoosier. Jim, yeah. do, do you do any uh, social media stuff that people can just link to? Just Facebook and it's under my name. There you go. I have a couple of Facebook pages. Like there's one for the Rats of Unusual Size. There's one for my radio show. I have a radio show uh, uh, called the Musical Gumbo Show. It plays on uh, the Overflow Sunday service on River Gibbs FM. If you look for River Gibbs FM, you'll find it. I play I've listened to it, actually. It's a, it's a good treat on a Sunday. Oh, wow. Absolutely. Thank good, you. Good Thank you very much, yeah, David. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, yeah, so that and also there's a page for my book, the uh, book, uh, the Elvis book. It's yeah, a, they, yeah, it's, yeah, a yeah. Horror, it's a horror comedy fantasy novel. There you go. There you go. We'll, we'll, have, we'll have all of those links in there. Thank you so much, and uh, everybody have a wonderful uh, afternoon. And as Norman and I always say, 
We gotta find a better sign off. And we are out.